Today on episode number 305 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, David White and Jose Bowen join me to discuss inspiration, failures, and everything in between. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, we are doing something a little different than we have been, checking in with a few of us around what we've been up to as it relates to the coronavirus pandemic. We're going to be looking at sources of inspiration, things that we are failing at or challenged by, and everything in between. Today's guests are David White and Jose Bowen. David White is the head of digital learning at the University of the Arts London, and he also is well known for the digital visitors and residents idea. In fact, so much so that the episode that you're hearing now was supposed to be him talking about that model. I'm excited to introduce you to it later on in a future episode, but wanted us to cover something a little bit more current with this one. Our second guest is no stranger to teaching in higher ed. That is Jose Antonio Bowen. He's the author of Teaching Naked. He's an innovative educator, pedagogical scholar, passionate teacher, advocate for student success. He's also a pianist and jazz musician. Dave and Jose, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Yeah. We're doing something a little different today in terms of the show format. We have a number of topics that we will be exploring, and each one of us doesn't know what the other one is going to say, so that should be great fun as well. Let's start out with a theme song, a movie, or a book that for you is representing this time. Jose. I just finished reading a book about pandemics. I read Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mendel. And uh, I know a strange thing to read at a time like this, but hers is much worse. 99.9% of all people die and civilization ends. So I actually found it oddly uplifting. <laughs> um, it gave me a little perspective. No, but it's a beautifully, beautifully written book. And it actually is full of hope and humanity in some interesting ways. And so I don't know, it was distracting in a weird kind of way. Mine, I feel, is such a cliche that I just tried so hard to resist using it because it feels like everyone's using it, but there is none other that is more representative of this time for me. That is a movie called Groundhog Day, <laughs> where the day okay. just is yeah. repeating yeah. over and over and over again. One of my children was actually born on Groundhog Day, so it's a special day for us, but I have lost all my sense of time. And I'm doing okay, but but I'm definitely feeling some some of that Groundhog Day ishness coming into my life. Wait, Groundhog Day is actually not fictional as well as being a movie. Well, in 
some parts of the United <laughs> States, they they actually celebrate Groundhog Day, which is when they decide if the winter is going to keep going for another Yeah, from like in the film. I just thought they'd made it up for the film, but no, that's fine. That's no. good. I'm learning. No, but but groundhogs really don't tell us the weather, though. That part, <laughs> that part is fictional. Oh, you're going to upset some people with that. <laughs> yes, I really am. I really yeah. am. So, uh, so my thing is the soundtrack to the film, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which is a title that contains its own spoiler in terms of movies. And it's by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. And it's just, it's so beautiful and kind of ethereal. And it's really difficult to describe the sort of emotions that are in it because it's, it's sublime, I suppose, for me. And I find it a really, I just find it a very calming thing to listen to because work's really intense at the moment and obviously the whole world is really intense at the moment so I just find that a really calming set of tracks that that are helpful that way. A tool starting with Jose. So I'm really taken with the new Merlot mini site preparing students teachers for online learning so it has you know all the usual merlot.org tools plus it has some workforce development stuff you know, some lists of free commercial technology that you can use, you know, Office of Civil Rights Reminders. But it also has a, a skills course for students, um, how to take an online course, which I think is good. So it's just it's just full of resources. There are lots of other people who've been putting together, you know, lists of stuff. But this is a particularly good one, in my view. I have a digital tool and an analog tool. I'm sort of cheating, but they work really nicely together. To me, digital calendars are saving my life right now. So little behind the scenes spoiler, this calendar event for today's conversation that we're having somehow in my six years of podcasting, this has never happened before, but it just fell off my calendar. (laughs) So fortunately, Jose sent me an email and said, I'm not sure where we're meeting. And that triggered in me going, oh my gosh, what on earth happened to that calendar invite? So I was able to use a digital calendar, of course, for myself to communicate to Dave and to Jose, where we were meeting digitally in this case, and then also to assign a series of yoga classes to my children through their digital calendars because they've learned how to go to a digital calendar and click on a link and access things too. So it's almost a way of communicating to them and helping, you know, set up their days for success as well. However, I'm also finding my analog planner even more helpful than usual. I'm really into that big three. So the big three, what are the three most important things that I want to accomplish today helps keep me focused in a very unfocused time. Dave, how about you? Okay, I'm going to cheat slightly. I've got two as well. And my (laughs) one is just stepping back Mm -hmm. uh, because my tool is the web. Because I was just reflecting, if if this situation had happened 10 years ago, then we'd have all piled online and everything would immediately have broken. Mm -hmm. And not everything is broken, which I think is really spectacular. And it's the reason why we're still connected and not socially distanced, even when we're socially distancing. And it's the reason we can carry on providing people with education and teaching. And sometimes it's easy to forget, you know, that it's because it's so part of our lives, it's easy to forget that actually everything's kind of running on it. So it's really spectacular. So there's that. And then my other one is a household, almost like wood glue that we get in the UK called No More Nails, which I 
I'm really glad that I've got a big tub of it because right now I feel like if anything breaks in the house, I'm a bit stuck. <laughs> so as long as I've got like a big tub of that, I'll, I'm just fixing everything with it. Even things that don't need fixing, I'm using it on. So it's like my safety blanket DIY thing. So those two, yeah. Throughout the years of doing this podcast, something that people have told me they've learned more from than anything else are getting to hear about others' failures and other struggles. Jose, what's been a failure for you or what are you struggling with during this time? Well, I think like a lot of people, there's a there's a cognitive bandwidth problem that, you know, humans are limited in this. And so, you know, stress, nervousness, anxiety, checking the news, it just takes up some of it. And so I'm not used to being less focused. You know, the grocery shopping is stressful enough under normal times and making all those choices and now it's worse. And now, of course, I'm trying to navigate government forms for various things. And so there's all this other stuff to do, but it's also emotional. And then, you know, then I'm in the classroom. And so my students have been great, but they're so real. You know, they, I'm so privileged and so lucky. You know, I'm not hungry. I'm not, you know, I have food. Uh, I'm not taking care of my parents or trying to figure out that sort of stuff. And so when I'm online with my students, I sometimes think, you know, what do I have to offer? you know, you're, you're dealing with real world stuff here. And I, you know, I can see their, their kids are in the background and stuff's happening. And I think, yeah, go do that. Go do that. You know, this, this is not that important. This can wait. And so there's, there's certainly a sense of too much bandwidth. Uh, I'm not providing any real value in students' lives right now, certainly in terms of content. And uh, so it's probably not as bad as I make it sound, but it certainly feels like like a failure to to have enough focus, you know, because I mean, look, we're academics, right? The idea, oh my God, we're home for a few weeks. We have time, you know, Shakespeare wrote King Lear. Let's do something. But yeah. For me, something that I've been challenged with, I mean, by the way, just to be candid, I am challenged every day. And as Jose said, I have it really good. And I do recognize that every day that despite those challenges, I am reminded moment by moment of just how good that I have it. One aspect of my work that is challenging me just to want to be better at it is having sufficient beginner's mind. So I am not only supporting, it's only one class, by the way, I teach one class a semester. So I'm supporting them. And what Jose talked about in terms of wanting to support our students well really resonates a lot with me. But I'm also supporting a team of about 200 resident and adjunct faculty, and some of which have never taught online, never had any desire to teach online. And I know that on a moment-by-moment basis, when I get a question that seems on its face to be simple, if I don't think of it and approach it with enough of a beginner's mind, I'm going to leave those people behind. So I'm working with a team of people at my institution. We don't want to be bouncing back and forth with email our hope is that we could get into a conversation with people such that we can more readily answer their questions and find out what the real issue is. It's so hard because sometimes technologically, I mean, we don't know why that didn't work. Is it your internet at your house or is that more on the provider's level? I mean, just like all these levels of complexity that I realize that some of us that have been doing this for decades and decades, our brain just goes a million miles a minute thinking through these possibilities and recognizing that despite technology not always working the way we wish it would for the vast majority of the time, it is staggering how cool it is. <laughs> and I think back to what Dave said earlier about the web and that not everything's broken is truly staggering. So I want to be getting better 
at that beginner's mind and also coupling it with asking the question of why. What's behind that question? What is it that they're hoping to accomplish? Because there might be a better way than they even know how to ask. They may be asking you, how do I do this task over here? But if I remember to ask about the why, I might be able to open up a whole other window that's even easier than the one they're trying to go through. So for me, that what I regularly fail at is the transition from work to home. Mm. Because I'm used to having quite a long commute, which I was fi- I'm actually finding was quite useful. Now my commute is about three or four meters, so it doesn't take very long. And what happens is work's really intense at the moment, and a lot of it's really strategic. And so what happens is for about an hour after I've stopped work, in inverted commas, I then talk to my family as if I was trying to strategically manage them into some, you know, I like going to the kitchen and say, hey, we're going to need a strategy for filling the dishwasher, guys. Let's talk about the different ways. Let's just get together, get some post-it notes, you know. So that's a disaster. And I very quickly get told that I need to calm down and change mode, which is a bit of a struggle because as of this moment, it's not necessarily that easy just to go out for a stroll and kind of reset. So I think that's, that's something that I want to try and get better at is figuring out ways of changing mode and becoming the person that I should be at home, that I always am normally. But it's really difficult when there's no geography involved. I find that really hard. Next up, a source of inspiration. Jose. I'm going to cheat. I have two. <laughs> well, we cheated earlier, so you're allowed to now. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's all right. We give That's it to uh, you. We give it to you. So, so the fir- my first source of inspiration is the garden. This is something I've been you know, interested in wanting to do for a long time, and I love it, but there's a little more time. And so, you know, in spring and things are coming up and my wildflower seeds came up. And so uh, I'm spending a little too much time uh, watering and weeding and watching things grow. But it's a reminder that, you know, life springs anew. And the other is really odd for me because I normally avoid Facebook and Twitter, except, you know, when I have to, you know, for tweeting, for work, essentially. But at the moment, I'm finding it inspirational because, you know, these people are posting, they're defending their dissertation or they've just received a PhD or they've, you know, the, the, and they've had to do it online in unusual ways. And so, and I'm seeing people, you know, post, well, I did this with my class and I taught my first online piano lesson. And so people are doing things they've never done before and succeeding. Uh, maybe it's just my, the way my feed is set up, but I've been focusing not on, I have, you know, I'm not looking at politics, but seeing what people have accomplished and what they're sharing and how they feel about it uh, has been really inspir- inspiring the last couple of weeks. I found those to be so inspiring too, Jose, and I'll just click like, I don't know, don't even know the person. It's just fun to see people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Somebody, somebody who, who just, you know, actually posted their PhD, you know, congratulatory. And it was like, congratulations. I don't know why you're in my feed, but what a thing to do during a time like this. Absolutely. So mine is also on social media. I don't know this person other than through Twitter. Her name is Jen Himstra. That's H-E-E-M-S-T-R-A. She's an associate professor at Emory University. And she's in the STEM field. She runs the Hemstra and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing her name correctly, but she runs that lab of hers that she leads. And in her profile, it says, working to grow leaders, fight inequity, embrace failure, and make the world a better place. And my discipline is not really 
it doesn't have time. I mean, besides the in, wonderful interdisciplinary work, it's very different than STEM, of course. And I feel like I relate to her more than people from within my discipline, just in terms of how she carries herself, her personal leadership, her organizational leadership. She really is an inspiration. I was disappointed to see recently that she said a lot of people were, I think she used the word trolling her. And I just thought like, like what she posts, how could you possibly find offensive? It's one of those people where you just think, come on. So I, I mean, I really wanted to encourage her. And I did say on her tweet where she mentioned that just how much she's meant to me. She's really been an uplifting person to me. She's challenged me to want to be better at what I do. And those are the moment by moment leadership decisions that we make. So I'm very grateful for her being there, despite having to persist through some, some hatred and trolling, which is just sad to see. So for me, it's my colleagues at work, actually, you know, working at a big art and design institution. One of the things I like about it is how everything's always a moving target. You know, the uh, courses that we teach tend to be like divergent rather than convergent courses. It's not necessarily a right answer. And what's been interesting is that the current situation has really brought people together. And it's been an absolute pleasure working with people. You know, the collaboration has been so good and so strong. And the amount of work that we've been able to do over such a short period of time has been really, really spectacular. So whilst it's difficult times, it's also been really exhilarating. And I'm really hopeful that we're, you know, forming working relationships that we can carry on with through this, through what is a time of great challenge. I think I'm seeing the best of a lot of people actually at work. And I hope they see that in me too. So that's been very inspiring for me. Mm. So true. Next up, we have a challenge that we would like to offer to people. What do we want to be thinking about? You know, how can we be doing this just a little bit better? Our challenge to you, or I should really say our challenge to us is starting with Jose. So this is the ultimate moment to put students first. And I'd like to challenge all of us as teachers and as institutions to think about what our ultimate mission is as teachers and mentors and as human beings and ask, are we really doing that most of the time? Uh, I think as teachers, you know, we were so focused on our content. We love our content. We love our subjects and our disciplines. Uh, and this is a time, I think, to rethink, am I teaching what I'm, I should be teaching? Am I teaching how I should be teaching? Are my students getting the most out of it? What do I really want? Can I check in and figure out what value I'm really adding and where it is? But this is ultimately the time to rethink what we do. For mine, I almost hesitate to say it. It makes me afraid to share this because I don't want it to come from a place where it seems like I'm not empathetic. I know that this time is so hard and that it's hard for others in my faculty community in ways that I know I don't understand, that I don't, as I said earlier, have enough of that beginner's mind to really be able to appreciate what people are going through. Having said that, very early on in this crisis, I found myself getting into more conversations than I would have liked to, which would have been zero, but more conversations about this just isn't going to work. Like, who are you to think that this is going to work? You know, this isn't going to work, right? This can't work. And I sorry, I, I was trying to be empathetic. And I think I was successful at that based on how things have gone since then. But to say, I know it's hard, but I don't, I don't want to give up. Because giving up to what Jose said would be giving up on our students. 
and them being able to graduate or being able to finish their sophomore year or whatever the case may be. So I'm not really ready to give up. And it's not my personality very much. And it's also not really ultimately fulfilling what I think all of our collective vision is for the possibilities in higher education. So my challenge is to shift the focus. Instead of saying why something won't work, think through what is possible. What's possible? And if we don't have a what's possible in a particular domain, then let's start some conversations with people who have a little bit more experience in that domain to help us see a vision for what's possible, because it's pretty amazing when you look around at what people are coming up with, everything from the seemingly ridiculous, I saw people coming up with document cameras that involved shoe boxes and, and and my husband and I made one of our own, you know, to became little inventors ourselves. I mean, there's little ways and there's really big ways that people are taking this challenge and being able to turn it into a series of opportunities. So this is something that came up at uh, an online conference where myself and Dr. Bonnie Stewart were doing a session on really it ended up being the tension between the idea of care and surveillance online you know where's the line between taking care of students and being uh, and offering care versus the way that technology can end up surveilling all of us and it was interesting to me because one of the things that i've found as things move online especially teaching is that sometimes people want to use the technology as a way of reducing uncertainty and reducing risk. So it's like, how can we make sure that students can't do X, Y, and Z? How can we make sure that this kind of process or practice, especially around assessment, is completely predictable and sort of 100% watertight? Because the technology kind of can encourage us to think that way. You know, how can I use this technology to make things more certain? And everybody wants a little bit of certainty right now, so I can Mm. see where people are coming from. So my challenge is really to trust our students. You know, I think actually we're in a time where we need a greater level of trust and to use the technology in a way that is trusting rather than to use the technology in a way that tries to, if you like, iron trust out of the system through becoming sort of more draconian in terms of the way that we employ it. And one of the reasons I think this is important is because it's tempting to to go in the non-trust direction because the technology gives you, you know, hints tantalizingly that you, if you could just get it set up right, Mm. then there would be zero risk from any angle. And actually, we don't need that right now. What we need is to say, you know what, we've set this up. You can appropriate it in various different ways. You can use it in various different ways. We're going to trust you to do the right thing because we've all got plenty to be dealing with right now. And so we're going to be generous. So I think that's the challenge is to keep trust there. And if not more trust, rather than going in the other direction, just because we've gone digital. I wish I'd said that. That's beautiful. (laughs) We've looked at a theme song, movie, or book, a tool, a failure, a source of inspiration, a challenge, and now we look forward with a hope. So I'm going to start with the arts since, you know, I'm a musician and 
there are no concerts. And so there are some online lessons and things that are happening. And I've been pretty amazed at the sort of creative things that I've seen people do with things that, you know, should have only been face to face. So my hope is that we use this as a moment for revitalization. You know, we know that artists have often made great art through pandemics, but other kinds of tragedy and massive changes in the human condition. So I hope this is a moment or what emerges after this moment, probably, where we can really rethink the value of face-to-face. Now that we've figured out things that we can do online, I think that's going to strengthen the call for what do we do face-to-face? It can't just be, well, that worked pretty well online, so maybe keep doing that online. But when we bring people to -to face-to-face, we're going to have to do more than just what we did during this semester online, which was, you know, kind of the minimum. But for most people, it's been content. And so I'm hoping that we can, we can reevaluate and revitalize our product, I guess, in the broadest sense. What is it that we're here for? What is it that we can do? And I certainly think that's going to happen in the arts, and I hope it happens in higher education. My hope is around us having more as a society of a sense of our collective. I studied in my master's and in my doctorate, something called systems thinking. And that shows up in a lot of different domains, but examples would include in environmentalism, in policy questions, and in business and leadership. But just this idea that something that I do seemingly as an individual with my own series of wants and needs and desires and that it can have an effect on people all over the world. I started out in my business ethics class. It, it wasn't right in the beginning, but but about a third of the way through, we watched a documentary about fast fashion. And to be more specific, we watched half of a documentary about fast fashion because that was right around the time when we were no longer able to meet in person. And I could only find it available in services that the students might not have access to on their own. So we didn't, I didn't require them to watch the rest of it, although I did find it somewhere on a documentary site and hope that they had an opportunity to. But that really started the conversation around this collective well-being, that, that more of a collectivist sort of mindset that what we do affects other people in both good and bad ways. But it was really more a little bit more hypothetical in the sense that, you know, one of the places that they focused on was Bangladesh. Most of them have never been there before, nor do they know very much about that part of the world. And so this epidemic, this pandemic is causing all of us to really shrink that and see how this takes places in our families, in our neighborhoods, our communities, and so on. And so I really do have this hope that we might take as a society might just have a greater stock of really our collective and how small actions that we take can make the world a better place as corny as that is to say but that's really what I'm feeling and what I'm hoping for today yeah I think my hope sort of follows on from that because my hope is in the idea of community because I think one of the really positive things that I've seen happening is to a certain extent an erosion of individualism in quite a good way and this recognition that actually we have to look after each other mm-hmm. and we have to share resources and we have to be mindful of our actions and how they affect other people. And that that's the same no matter how wealthy you are and it's the same no matter what your life situation is in. And it took us a while to learn in the UK, but I think we, we've got there. So I'm hoping that 
this sense of yeah in a way it was a little bit like what you were saying this kind of co- this sense of collective responsibility which has come about because of the pandemic will stay with us afterwards and you know as an extension of that in the UK i'm really hopeful that and i think i'm right about this that the nhs the national health service in the uk is going to be very well funded after this mm. whereas there were you know political moves to privatize it and it's always been under threat and uh, it comes under a lot of criticism because it's a useful sort of political football basically and i think anybody who wants to be voted into government in the uk for the next 20 years is going to have to be really looking after the nhs and that can only be a good thing for everyone you know it doesn't again you know everybody is relying on the nhs like never before and even private providers of health services have actually donated all their equipment to the nhs so it's all focused on them so there's something really really hopeful about this sudden return to the idea of the civic and the public and the shared and the communal that i'm finding really uplifting and my and my hope is we keep it that's my big hope this is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations we're going to start out with jose so ryan my recommendation is for a fabulous book by nasim nicholas taleb called anti-fragile things that gain from disorder so you know i write a lot about resilience in students and he has this concept that there are things in the world that are better than resilient uh, there are things that actually gain from stress and from chaos so things like your bones right if you don't use if you don't have weight and stress against your bones they get weaker nature gets stronger through chaos and good things happen and so you know are there systems and ways to design systems and ways to be as a human or institution where you don't just resist the disorder but you actually embrace it and can grow stronger through it and it's it's a beautifully thoughtful crazy crazy book but it is one of those big big ideas that will transform your thinking and he punches up against all sorts of things that we think oh i know what that means and i oh i like that oh wait he's i'm wrong but you know mm-hmm. what is he saying so it is one of those mind-bending books, anti-fragile. How dense is it of a read? Oh, you know, so... <laughs> That's it, a good response. <laughs> so the truth is... You're it's, scaring it's, me. <laughs> it's, no, but here's, here's the good news. It's a long, dense book, but you can drop in almost any place. He writes so well. He's a funny guy. He has a kind of a foul mouth, but he is blunt and funny. And so the book is actually a pretty... I won't say easy read, but it's an entertaining, fun, stimulating read. And, you know, I've never read the whole thing through just like, okay, I'm going to spend a week. You know, I I read bits of it. I put it down. I come back to it. It's a great source for inspiration to just dip in because, again, it's just counter to so many things uh, that we think we knew. So, yeah, you might not make it all the way through, but a little bit is rewarding. Mm, It sounds like kind of a mixture. Yeah. There's something interesting in that about the idea of control not being the ultimate aim, you know, and how that relates to the times right now, that actually sometimes it's a good thing to acknowledge that we aren't in control and that sometimes that's how things should be and interesting things can arise from that. Is that partly what the kind of territory of the book? 
It is. In fact, he's the author of this, you know, the Black Swan, which is about, you know, this is being uh, called yeah. a Black Swan event on on the stock market. But, but yeah, indeed, it's it's like you know, you know, that control is is illusory, and it's not really what we think it is. You know, trying to trying to resist against breakage is not what we think it is. So you know, you're you're exactly right in terms of where it's going. Mm-hmm. I think I heard him on a podcast. I didn't I didn't recognize the name, but I heard the author of the Black Swan on another podcast, and so I think he must have been promoting his book on that. And I just didn't remember the name of it. It sounds great. I might just give that a try. So my book was kind of the opposite in terms of dense. I was able to read it in about a day and a half. And that's not something I hardly ever do. It really enveloped me in this person's story. It's a memoir. It's called Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and a Mother's Will to Survive by Stephanie Land. And it's a wonderful but but painful look just at people living right on, I was going to say on the margins, but without any kind of margin. And I don't want to give too much of the book away because it's her story to tell. But uh, some people on Amazon, boy, the Amazon reviews, you just want to go, no, no, no. They were mad because she didn't talk more about what it's like to be a maid. And I'm like, no, she actually talks about it pretty descriptively, but it wasn't like, you know, a, it wasn't specifically on that as a profession. It's really about a single parenting story and about a really, really series of hard, hard jobs and just how difficult they are given the circumstances and um, issues with childcare and healthcare. I found it very moving. And yeah, I was glad to see, actually, I went to her website too. She is a white woman and she does acknowledge, although not as much in the book, more so in her blog, but just about that, even though it's been incredibly hard for her, that she recognizes that when she walks around the world as a white woman, she doesn't also carry with her the baggage involved in uh, people carrying around things that might evoke racism and other people and things like that. I was glad that she acknowledged that. On a much, 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 much happier note, a wonderful new online television series has come out by John Krasinski, who was in The Office. You may be familiar with his acting there, and he's directed and done all kinds of other things too. But he has come out with a series called Some Good News, and it's done out of his home, and he must have some either great editing skills or he's passing that off to other people it's just so wonderful. You, even earlier when Jose and Dave were talking about the things that were bringing them hope and, and the ways that they were being inspired, I felt even just within my own being, I felt you know my heart rate lowering a little bit and a smile coming across my face. That's what this television show does. I cannot recommend it enough. And it also is one that you could watch with the whole family. My daughter and I just watched the second episode together last night. And she's like, can I watch the next one? And as of this recording, it's not out yet. But he says, there's another one coming next week. Okay, so my thing, well, I've got a couple of things. Uh, I'm going to go in a completely different direction because one of my things is actually a digital game called Return of the Obra Dinn, and it's described as an insurance adventure with minimal color. It's basically just brown and white, and I've been playing it with one of my kids, and it's like a kind of narrative puzzle. So if you can imagine this, a ship drifts back into the port of Falmouth in 1807, and everybody's been lost at sea, and you have to go onto the ship and figure out exactly who was who and exactly how everybody died. Mm. So it sounds a little bit morbid, but it's so atmospheric. It's so compelling. And you gradually piece together who people are. And, you gr- and it starts backwards. So it starts at the end. So you're gradually, yeah, like a kind of jigsaw puzzle of narrative. And the music in it's great. And the visuals are so simple that they're, they're, they're so restful. 
on your eyes after days of looking at really glary text that I've actually found it really, really compelling. I mean, I literally woke up in the middle of the night last night and instead of worrying about work, I was trying to figure out this game. I was like, wait a minute, if the Kraken came in that chapter, but he wasn't there, you know, and so that's been great fun and just something, it's just completely different, but very, very engaging. And then the other thing is a novel that I've just started called Kudos by Rachel Cusk, who, and this is the third in a trilogy with Outline and Transit being the previous two. And she writes in this style that's very difficult to kind of identify. You can't quite tell if it's autobiography, if it's fiction. It's definitely somewhere between the two. But one of the reasons that I found it so compelling and interesting is because Kudos, this novel, opens with her uh, talking to a man sat next to her on an aeroplane, like just two strangers might talk. But just reading it under these circumstances, it seems so strange. It's like you sat next to someone, you're on an aeroplane. Is nobody worried about that? You know, people are shaking hands. They don't think anything of it. So I found it just a very almost startling reminder of how quickly everything had changed. And it made me wonder about how we'll feel about those things when we go back to them or whether we'll always be you know, modified in our identities and in the way we relate to each. So it just got me thinking of lots of things just because it opens with that conversation on an aeroplane and, and just that seems strange. That suddenly seems strange. So that was interesting to me. Sometimes things like that can be so fun when you're reading and they just envelop your curiosity from the very, very first few words. Well, Jose and Dave, I so appreciate you coming on during this time and sharing little glimpses in your life, what's bringing you hope, what's inspiring you, and what you're struggling with. I've just really enjoyed this conversation and opportunity to connect with you at an important time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It was great. Thanks once again to today's guests. David White and Jose Bowen. I so enjoyed having this conversation with you. I'm walking away from it feeling uplifted and hopeful, and I hope it does that for other people as well. If you are in need of some connections and a little bit of hope, I would love to have us follow each other over on Twitter. I'm at Bonnie, B-O-N-N-I 208. There also is a teaching in higher ed account at T-I- higher ed. So I'd love to connect with you on either of those accounts. Thanks so much for listening to not just today's episode, but hopefully you've been listening for a while and appreciate just this opportunity to check in with one another and see how we're doing as a community. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.